Courage to Hope with Tony LaGreca is a show supporting the fight for sobriety against substance abuse and changing the stigma that comes along with it. Tony has been helping families, friends, and loved ones discover recovery services as well as coping skills for over six years following the death of his own son to opioids. Join Tony and his guests each week as they reveal the courage to hope. Here's your host, Tony LaGreca. Thank you, Ben. And this is Tony LaGreca, and this is The Courage to Hope. And tonight's guest is Lisa Williams. And I met Lisa at the grief conference in Framingham, and she was one of the keynote speakers, and she's got a lot to say about grief. Welcome, Lisa. Thanks so much, Tony. I really appreciate you having me. Yes, and we we wanted to talk about, um, some people call it the trifecta, the, the three holidays that come this time of the year, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and and um, New Year's, it's, it's basically one of the toughest times for people who are dealing with grief because that empty chair on, on any of these holidays is, is a lot. And I know we feel guilty about celebrating a holiday when the person who died is not with us. And I, I did see that you wrote um, something about um, five, five reminders for how to deal with the different holidays. Let's start with that. And elaborate on those, please. Sure. I, I think there are a lot of different places to start depending on each individual person and thinking about how the holiday is affecting them. But the thing that you mentioned, I think, is often a good place to start, which is that guilt that a lot of people feel about going into the holiday season. It is just this complex time of year when there are so many messages about family and gratitude and giving and togetherness and all these things that we feel like we're supposed to be celebrating and that are supposed to be comforting to us. And yet when we're grieving, it can feel like we're not grateful. We're struggling to get into the holiday spirit. And when we do, then we suddenly feel a little bit of guilt about it. And so the, one of the things we always encourage people to start with is just saying there are going to be mixed emotions this holiday season and trying to be able to get comfortable with that idea that after loss, life is just bittersweet, right? There's always going to be that awareness that we have the pain of the absence of that person, but then we also may be feeling especially grateful for the people who we do have. And we may have those moments of really valuing that togetherness and they can, we can kind of hold both of those things at the same time. So I guess I always, from like a mindset perspective, I think it's just helpful to go in and say the holiday is probably going to be both. It's probably going to have all of those emotions mixed together. Um, then one of the other things that we really encourage people to think about is just holiday traditions and the idea that we can have traditions that we keep, and we can also create new traditions or take a pause on traditions. There are so many years that we often have specific memories of, this is what the holiday was supposed to look like. We did exactly this. These were the foods. This is um, you know, where we went, or this is who we spent time with. And those things sometimes after a loss, they some of those things have to change, or sometimes you just don't feel up for it. And so we always encourage people to just say, you know what, we can talk as a family about 
which traditions maybe we're going to have to take a pause on this year, which traditions maybe we're going to um, do a little bit differently this year and which things we may really want to hold on to that are important to us. So that is always one place that we encourage um encourage you to talk to other family members and think through before the holiday hits you and you realize, wow, we didn't talk about traditions at all. So sometimes you realize that on the holiday and you go, okay, now we've learned for the next holiday. Like if if we didn't think about it this time, we can do that for next time. Um, One of the others is just give yourself a break, right? It's okay if you need to take a time out. It's okay if you need to say, Hey, this is a little overwhelming. I'm feeling all my emotions coming up. I need to get outside. I need to take a little space. If you're going to someone's house for the holidays, sometimes having control over whether you're driving or not so that you don't feel like you're trapped there. If you need to leave early or you feel like it's too much, um, be able to give yourself permission to leave early if you need to leave early, take that space to make the room for your grief if if you have to. So, I mean, those are just a handful, I think, of the things that we always encourage people to think about. And of course, then to think about how they can stay connected to the person who died, um, incorporating that person's memory into the day, thinking about what they loved about the holiday, maybe sharing stories about holidays when they were here in the past, those things can be a real source of, of comfort to us sometimes on the holiday. Well, sometimes, let's say if you're the parent who lost a child and you're you're at your brother's house or your sister's house and there's other people there that didn't know your child that well, um, you know, how, how do you, you know, you don't, you don't, do you bring up the subject or you're not? Or, and what, what is your thought about having an empty chair where the other person would have been sitting? Uh, where, where do you think about that? Yeah, you know, I think everyone needs to to do what they feel comfortable with. But to me, I think if we feel like on the holiday that we want to talk about the person who's gone, if we're feeling that absence, if we want to either share stories or if we're spending the day with people who didn't know them that well, we may want to help them to get to know that their memory through those stories. And I think being comfortable with that goes a long way. I think being able to feel like we can share those memories if it's important to us is something that should be part of the holiday. That said, I know that sometimes people hesitate because they worry that it's going to make other people uncomfortable. And they worry that all of a sudden, if they bring up their grief and they bring up the person who's died that other people won't know how to respond or uh, they'll get uncomfortable in some way. And I think one of the things that we can do is if we want to bring it up, if we want to talk about it is to be able to say, you know, I'm bringing this up because one of the things that really helps me at the holiday is to be able to talk about him and to be able to share stories about him and to give people that cue to say, you know, I'm sharing this because it's something that feels good to me at the holiday season. Uh, If we want to warn them too, that our grief is tricky, it's complicated, right? And so I think sometimes if we don't mention to other people that we're grieving, that we have this loss that feels very close to the surface at the holiday. Um, They don't know if we feel overwhelmed and we need to get a little bit of space or if 
something kind of comes up that triggers a little bit of our grief. So it can be really useful to, if you accept an invitation, if you're going somewhere, just to remind a person, you know, the holidays are especially tough for me. I lost this person, been thinking about it a lot. I'm really grateful for the invitation. I'm looking forward to seeing everybody. And also if it gets to be too much, I might need to step out for a little while and don't worry. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll check back in, but I might need a little space. Yes. And, um, I was just checking those, um, the five things that you wrote about, mm-hmm. um, what about the guilt about enjoying yourself? And that's, you know, yeah. that they're not there and you are, and you're having a good time. And all of a sudden you say, I don't think I should be having this good time. This is, uh, this is, you know, I'm, I'm, this is a bad thing. And I'm not, you know, you feel guilty that you're not acknowledging that they're not having the good time with you. Yeah, that they're not there. You know, I think one thing that so often in grief we worry about is that our pain is our connection to the person who died. We think if we're not feeling pain, that must mean that we're forgetting about them or that we're moving on or that we're not grieving anymore. And I think it can be so important to remember that our pain is not our connection, right? Our connection is all of these memories we have and the way that we keep that person's legacy alive and that they stay with us in so many ways. And so in, in their life, when they were here, we weren't thinking about them every single moment of every single day, right? We were living our lives and they were part of our thoughts sometimes and other times they weren't. And in grief, that's true too, right? Sometimes that pain is a huge part of our day. Sometimes we are lucky to have those other moments where we're feeling joy, where we're feeling enthusiasm. It doesn't mean that we're losing our connection to them. It just means that it's a moment where we have space for these other things. In those moments, it's always going to be hard to say they're not here for this, right? We don't have them to share it with. And that makes it hard to not feel some level of guilt. But I think one thing that brings some people a little bit of comfort almost is to say, you know, I, I am still here. And one of the things that I can do in their memory and their honor that they would probably want me to do is to be able to enjoy these moments of life in a way that's even more mindful and grateful and present in these moments, because I know how fleeting life can be. We know how everything can change overnight. And to say, it's almost my responsibility to carry on in the world in a way that feels all the range of emotions, all the grief, but also all the joy and the gratitude and all of those things, because they're not here to do any of that. Um, it isn't easy, but I think it can be a really important part of figuring out how we move forward with uh, without somebody who we love so much. And do you believe that the more you grieve, it shows that you had more love for that person? <laughs> I mean, I I think that the certainly that we know that our love 
for a person when they're gone, like the way that that love carries on in the world. Um, part of it is grief, the way we think of it, the, the tearful parts of grief, the sad parts of grief. But I think grief looks so different for so many people. There are so many moments in our lives that I would certainly say when I think of my grief, it doesn't necessarily at all look like tears or sadness or things that anybody looking at me outwardly would say are grief, but they're the connection to the people who've died that I decide to carry on. Like I, I go hiking all the time and backpacking and, um, a huge part of that is my connection to my dad. He took me camping as a kid and hiking and backpacking, you know, all of that. I feel so much love when I do those things towards my dad because he taught me those things. Um, but I don't think people look at that and say, oh, like, oh, look at her. She's grieving, right? I look like just like a person out in the woods. Um, so I think we have to be careful if we're worrying other people, if we're not expressing our grief in terms of tears and sadness, if other people see us enjoying a holiday meal or being out in the woods camping, that they must not be thinking about the person or loving the person as much as someone who is crying and tearful. I think that grief comes out in so many different ways and it is certainly a reflection of our love, but it doesn't always look the way that people expect it to, if, if that makes sense. Well, it does. Um, when we were at the convention, um, you spoke uh, quite a bit about dealing with the grief and mm -hmm. um, can you you know, let's set the holiday part aside for a second. And your approach to, to how to grieve is quite interesting. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, one of the things for me, I, I guess, in my own life, I was introduced to loss, I guess, at a really young age. Loss was um, part of my family and my childhood from when I was really young. And interestingly, I think I didn't come to understand until I was an adult that there were certain things culturally about how my family <laughs> grieved that uh, really set a tone maybe to how later in life I understood grief. And now as a grief therapist and a mental health professional, certainly how I think about loss. And part of that is that my mom is Greek and in the Greek Orthodox tradition, there is very much more of an ongoing connection to people who died. I mean, it's built in even into the religion that there are ways that you honor people who have died and have memorials, not just the year later, but for decades later that you continue to honor connections to people who've died. And so from a very young age, um, that was part of my growing up and my family. And we talked about people who had died, who I had never met in my family. My you know grandfathers both died before I was born. And yet we definitely talked about them and told stories and those were honored in my childhood. So I say that to, as just, I guess, a groundwork to say that was the, the backdrop. 
to later in my life when I was 18, my dad died. And then uh, in my twenties, my sister's partner, who was an incredible person and like a member of our family, he died of a drug overdose. And um, at those times in my life, I started thinking about grief in all these new ways. I mean, part of the, the challenge when John died was I was so overwhelmed by how many people were remembering his addiction rather than remembering all these other things about him and who he was as a person. And one thing that I wanted for both my dad and for John was to keep connections. Just like when I was a kid, we had kept connections to other people and didn't want the connection to John. I didn't want the only connections to be his addiction. I wanted it to be all of these other things about him. And so part of my ongoing grief has been thinking about how we have a relationship with people who have died. What does that mean to figure out how they live on in the world through us and how we continue to be influenced by the imprints that they left on us and how they inspired who we are, like what we learned, the values, the, the way we exist in the world because of them. Um, and it was not until much later that I went to graduate school and learned about mental health and grief theory and learned that there was sort of names for all of this, that there is a idea in modern grief theory called continuing bonds and continuing bonds theory really created a new template for thinking about grief. Uh, It was grief theorists who in the 1990s had all been trained under these ideas of sort of the five stages of grief and people thinking that you needed to find closure and put the memory of your loved one behind you so that you could put your energy into your life moving forward. And these theorists said, you know, we're working with a lot of people who are grieving and what they seem to be doing is creating connections. They're not putting the person in the past. They're not, you know, they don't need that energy to find new things in their lives. What they seem to be doing is creating and keeping connections to the people who died and creating new things in their lives and bringing those memories of the person with them and being able to bring that person into the future. That doesn't seem to be pathological or unhealthy. That actually seems to be something that's helping them in their grief is keeping those connections. And so I right away just you know resonated so deeply with that because it was so much of my own experience of grief had been about these continued connections I had kept for many, many years. And the way that I wanted to keep very specific um, memories and legacy of people alive that went beyond just how they died um, in John's case. And so for me now, a big part of my work with working with people as a grief therapist and through the the website where we do education is helping people to understand that continuing bonds is normal. It's healthy. It's something that so many of us do, and it can be such a great source of comfort in our grief to be able to share those stories, talk about the people who are gone, to think about the ways that they're still 
shaping and affecting the world through us. Um, and just trying to let people know that, you know, though a lot of society still makes us feel like we're supposed to find closure and not talk about people who've died after too many years, or, you know, that means we're stuck to try to help bring people into what we know from modern grief theory, which is that it's very, very normal and natural and healthy to grieve through these continued connections. So are you saying that, you know, um, the whole five theories of grief, um, are not applicable here or we should, you know, not get stuck on one or get into an issue like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I always want to be careful to make sure to acknowledge Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. I mean, she was an absolutely groundbreaking uh, figure in the history of death and dying. She did incredible work in hospice and palliative care. And she got society talking about death and dying and grief in ways they had not before. But Elizabeth Kubler-Ross created her five stages of grief, working with people who were dying, not with people who were grieving. So she developed them um, based on her observations about what does a person go through from the time of their terminal diagnosis until the time of their death. And that's what her book was about on death and dying. Later, many people were applying her work to grief. And she herself, it was much later that she wrote the book on grief and grieving, where she talks about the five stages in the context of grief. And in the whole beginning of that book, she is so cautious to say, this isn't how I really intended these stages. I didn't intend people to think that these were linear and that they uh, were exhaustive and that you were going to go through them in order and that they were going to apply to grief in the way that people were using them. Um, she did say, I think there are things that we can learn from this that we can, that many people do relate to. Um, but even she herself said this application of them is not what I ever intended. And so I think that's context is what is so important to keep in mind. When we look at the research now, we know that most people don't grieve simply in these five neat, tidy little stages. It's um, appealing. I think we almost wish that grief looked that neat and tidy and predictable. But for most people, uh, grief looks like a cycle of all different emotions and experiences. We know that when people compare themselves to the five stages or they think that's how they're supposed to grieve, that that actually research has shown us makes it harder for some people because they feel like, oh, I must be grieving wrong because I I didn't go through the bargaining phase and I've you know been cycling through all these different places and I still haven't found acceptance. And so then we have all the grief we're carrying but then also all the self-judgment of like, why am I grieving wrong? Other people must be grieving different or better than I am or more organized in these five stages. So letting go of that 
as an expectation for yourself and knowing that there are so many different ways that people grieve. There are so um, many different modern theories that have said the stages, the tasks, the phases that were these ideas of early grief theory. It was important to get us going and having a dialogue about grief but we've come a long way and we understand now that that's not really how people grieve uh, overall. That's very interesting. Let's talk a little bit about you. You write in, you call it a newsletter. What's your grief is your, is what you send out. And um, first of all, tell me about the newsletter and what it, what you're trying to accomplish. And then also let's talk about how somebody who wants to get your newsletter, which I highly recommend, um, how do they go about doing that? Yeah, absolutely. So we founded What's Your Grief? Um, I founded it with a colleague back in 2012. And we were working in an organization that supported people through traumatic and unexpected losses. And we met people at the hospital at the time, we were often there with the doctor when they were learning that their family member hadn't survived. And uh, we would then work with them for two years, at least afterwards. And in that time, we learned that though what we were offering was often counseling or support groups or more traditional uh, types of grief support, that there were a lot of people out there who just did not necessarily want that. Uh, or they couldn't find time for it in their schedule or, but a lot of people uh, just were like, counseling's not for me. Groups aren't for me. And we were often looking for resources to provide those people. Like what do, what could we give them? And people would often say, can you, can you email me something? Can you send me articles? What can you send me? And we would look and, and just not really find online what we were looking for. This was you know, going back to 2010, 2011, you know, the internet was a different place than it is now, but we struggled to really find good information. And so at that time, we just started writing. We just started writing articles that we felt like were both evidence-informed and really grounded in solid theory and research about grief and bereavement but that we're also through the lens of our own losses. Um, we'd both gone through significant losses, both death and non-death losses by that time. And we were really informed by also just wanting to talk about grief in the way that we would talk about grief to each other and just kind of accessible down to earth ways to acknowledge that there's so many types of coping and creativity you can use and that it's not just about talking. It's not always about support groups. And so that's how it was really kind of born. It started as a website and a newsletter where we would just uh, write articles, information. We would uh, send those out to people on our email list and we imagined it really just for people who were grieving, thinking about the people we were working with and friends and family who we knew. And it just started growing very quickly in part because a lot of grief professionals out there were saying to us, I want things to send to 
some of my clients who maybe they are coming to support groups and counseling, but they could use some other information and things to read. And uh, we started uh, recording a podcast. We started trying to find ways to reach people who, again, might want either some additional support in addition to counseling and support groups or an alternative. Um, so we now look for all different mediums that we can do that. So we have free webinars periodically. We have online courses. We have creative expression um, kind of groups that you can get involved in around grief to try to meet the needs of a full range of different types of grievers rather than trying to say everybody needs to kind of get shoehorned into that counseling and support group um, catch-all that had been a lot of what we had seen before. So whatsyourgrief.com is where you can see all of our past articles. You can sign up for the newsletter. It shows some of our creative expression projects like uh, grief secrets and photo grief, which uses photography as a tool for grief and grief in six words, which is where people can share six word stories about grief. It's just a range of different things that people can find there. That's um, quite interesting. And I, I don't even know how I got signed up. I know I signed up somewhere along the way. Do you have any idea how many people you have now on your contact list? Yeah. So on our, our list at any given time, you know, it fluctuates up and down, which we always say we're, we're actually always glad kind kind of to see people leave our list because we feel like sometimes that happens because they're, they're in a better place uh, in their own grief. And they think, all right, I've, I don't know if I really need this anymore. Um, but usually at any given time, we'll have anywhere from 65, 5,000 to 80,000 people who are on the email list. And then in terms of actually accessing our resources um, every month on the wet who come to the website, we usually have about 500,000 people each month who come to the site and access articles and the other resources and materials who that are there. So um, we've been grateful and, and, shocked that it has reached so many people. I think when we first started, we never imagined that it would grow in the way that it has. Did you say 500,000? Yeah. A half a million. Yeah. 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 Really amazing. And I think, again, just shows that people are there on Google looking for something, right? After loss, I think sometimes we just feel so lost. And when we look at how most people find our articles, there's the subset that receive them by email and certainly who then share with their friends and family, but a huge number find us through Google and we can see, you know, the search terms that bring people to us. And, you know, it will often be the things like just feeling angry and grief, feeling guilty while grieving, you know, lonely at the holidays, the things that you know that so many of us feel in grief and, you know, in 2023, right? What do you do when you don't know what to do? You ask Google. <laughs> so that is, yeah, sadly how many people come to us, but we're, we're glad to be there when people are typing into Google looking for information. I, I suppose the biggest thing, in our country, we have, you know, it, you, 
typical job. You get two weeks for for um, bereavement, you know, maybe you get two weeks. I was going to say two weeks is generous. I think most people on average three days. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is to me pathetic, but um, other countries you get six months, some get a whole year. Yeah. And, and, you know, in different religions, they celebrate um, the, the loss of a loved one differently. And, um, and you can like the Jewish people have a shiva mm-hmm. and, and the, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's real, it's real um, um, togetherness in remembering this person, you know, and there's, I don't want to say it's closure, but it's certainly better than going to a church, going to the cemetery and driving away. That seems, yes. that, that seems pretty cold. Um, and I, I, I do, have we ever just figured out other countries and how they grieve as opposed to our country and what do we do wrong? I mean, what do you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think this is so interesting and hard and frustrating. And I, as, as I mentioned, because my mom is Greek and because in the Greek tradition, there is so much more honoring and remembering of people who have died. I have been really interested and and fascinated by how in the Western world and in America specifically, we have in many ways gotten away from any sorts of those types of traditions that really keep ongoing um, memorialization or even that give much ritual and structure beyond a funeral. You know, we, we keep it so limited. And I think part of that is that we really medicalized death in so many ways, right? We move people, everything happened in hospitals and then funeral homes that were outside of the home. We moved that tradition away from something that in other cultures, we still see that there was more of a value of um, people dying at home at, with people having funerals at home, keeping that, you know, certainly that used to happen in the U.S., but we kind of separated everything out and acted a little bit like, okay, we could contain it over here, right? We could put it all over there and then get back to work. And I think act as though this would be the end of, of the, that grief process for people. And we know that that isn't how it works, that we have so many, uh, we have so many grief needs that come up for months and for years afterwards um, that just haven't been part of that cultural tradition. I I wish I could say why beyond, I do think, you know, again, the way we moved things into funeral homes and out of homes, and there was a little bit less of that community care that used to exist. Um, And I do think part of it too, is that we're a country that was born on a lot of industry and industriousness and people having to value work and to be able to kind of keep active all the time. Um, There wasn't a lot of 
infrastructure. You know, when we think about America being built as a culture and as a society, some of the other places in the world that we look have cultures and societies that were well embedded to maybe be able to give their community members more time off of work, more community care and support to be able to come and uh, tend to the needs of people who are grieving for longer and in different ways. Um, but now I think what we can do is sometimes take some of our cues and look to other cultures. I think we see this happening more and more. I think one of the reasons that in the last, I would say maybe five to 10 years, there has been so much more interest in um, Day of the Dead in the Mexican tradition, uh, Dia de Muertos, that in the U.S., we see a lot of people who are interested in that, who are interested in having a altar in their house where they honor someone who's died and sometimes leaving those up year round, but certainly having them up at, you know, that time at that time of the year for Dia de Muertos or reconnecting with uh, All Saints Day or All Souls Day, even if that hadn't necessarily been a big part of one's religious or cultural tradition growing up, that we've seen this happening a lot for younger generations. And I think just people online of wanting to look to some of those older traditions or other culture traditions as a way to try to keep some of those memories alive of people and to honor that year after year and to say our grief isn't over just because you only gave us three days of bereavement leave. Um, we're still here honoring and remembering people uh, every year. Yeah, I've been to a fair number of funerals as I've gotten older, more of my associates have passed away and a couple of religions and um, I will pick on the Catholic religion First, they they even limit who can speak at the funeral. They wow. they want it to be clear and cut and done in an hour, you know. And and yeah. they let one family member get up and say something, and yet there's multiple people who want to get up and say something, you know. And other religions, mm -hmm. uh, different Protestant religions and Buddhist religions, they don't do that, you know. They they allow people to say what they need to say, and I think it's um, and it's 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 kind of to me a problem that be in a funeral where they you just don't get a chance to talk about the, the person who died and some of the highlights of their life and what their accomplishments were. And it's oh, uh, I find that depressing in itself, you know. Yeah, um, well, because you think like what a, that that so much of what a funeral is for is to just truly honor and who that person was and create as much space, I think, as we can to allow people to share those memories and those connections. Um, it, it doesn't feel right to limit that at a time that should be about sharing that. Yes. Um, what do you say to a person who's got relatives who continuously tell them that they've got to move on? You know, there's, there's this thing that in America, I guess that they they say, "Oh, come on, you know, aren't you over it yet?" Or you got to move on. And it's like, no, I didn't have a cold. My child died, or my lover died. You know, I yeah. um, I don't want to move on. 
Yeah. You know, um, how do you, how do you deal with that when you're counseling somebody? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that this is, uh, one of those things that oftentimes what's going on is about them. You know, it's not about us. It's about the person who is saying, why haven't you moved on? And often what's going on is that they're uncomfortable, right? It's making them uncomfortable to have to witness our ongoing grief or our connection to the person in a way that they don't know how to respond to or how to navigate. And so I say that mostly to say, I think it's important when that comes up to be able to remember like, okay, this is not about me. This is about them. What I'm doing in terms of still being connected to the person who died, still having hard days, still expressing my grief and having feelings, that's normal. Like there's research that shows that that's what most people who are grieving do. They create a connection. There's a study that just came out that, uh, or that I just read didn't just came out. It was a survey that was done with adults who were bereaved as children and had a parent die. And they found that the majority, the vast majority of adults who lost a parent in childhood said that they still think about that deceased parent every day over 35 years later. And when they looked at those numbers and, you know, I looked at that and I thought, I wish everyone grieving could see that just to say, oh, right. It's normal that I do that. I'm not the weird one. Like society might make me feel like I'm the weird one, but here's this huge survey data to show that most people do that. So when I'm talking to someone and they're telling me about a family members or friends who are pressuring them to move on or acting like it's not normal that they want to keep remembering or posting on social media or talking about the person. I start there of saying what, what you're doing isn't weird. It's not unnatural. It's not abnormal. So let's start with reminding us uh, ourselves about that. And then I often encourage them to, to check in with the other person and to say, you know, my connection to my daughter or to my husband or to my dad or, you know, whoever it is, it's actually something that I really value. Like for my life, I don't expect that I should always be happy all the time. I want to always be engaged in living all the time. And part of being engaged in living for me is remembering people who meant so much and who I loved that that's part of what life is for me. And I'm really comfortable with the way that I'm grieving. And I guess I want to understand what's making it hard for you to be present with my grief or what's making it hard for you so that you think that I need to move on because often we do need to put it back on the other person and say, you know, this is, this is working for me, right? I'm, I'm not trying to leave this person in the past behind me. I am still living a meaningful life, even if it's hard, even if I have sad days, even if I grieve. Um, and what is it that's making it hard for other people? And I think that can, you know, it depends on your relationship with the person, right? It can be, um, 
a different conversation with different people, depending on how close they are or not close. But I do think it's important sometimes that we ask people those questions and help them to realize that oftentimes they're not helping us by saying you need to move on. What they're doing is they're minimizing something that's really an important part of who we are and how we live in the world now. Yes. Um, so what about those people that do want to move on real fast? Are they damaging their emotional health down the road? Uh, yeah. I, I'll give you an example. Like when, when my mother passed away, she was okay. She was eight, 93. So it wasn't, you know, a sudden death or anything. Mm -hmm. And after the funeral was over, my brother took that book that everybody signed in uh -huh. and he threw it in the trash. He says, oh, well, that's wow. over. And, wow. and he's, and since my mother and father have died until, until about six weeks ago, because my, my cousin had to be, was buried in the same plot that my father was buried on. My father, my brother told me that he had never come back to the funeral to the place since 1976. Wow, isn't that interesting? And he never, and he never goes to my mother's uh, where she was buried. Where he never goes was... there either. Right, right. And, uh, That's... and I, yeah, I think there's a, a shallowness in the way they're dealing with it if that happens. Yeah. So you know, this is something that I think is is really tricky because one thing that's important to remember is sometimes the way that people outwardly grieve is different. And so we know that some people are more of what they call intuitive grievers. And those are folks who are a little, maybe a, a more emotional in how they share their grief. And they might be a little bit more traditionally what we expect. They like to connect with those emotions. They uh, like to go to the cemetery or to group support groups and you know, they grieve a bit in that way. And some people are what we call more instrumental. And those are people who are a little bit more cognitive in how they grieve. They don't tune into their emotions as much. They tend to be more active um, or physical sometimes in how they grieve. Um, and so sometimes what's going on when people will say to me, is this person avoiding or repressing their grief or grieving wrong? You know, sometimes what's going on is that they're connecting with their grief, but they're just doing it in ways that are a little more instrumental. And so it doesn't look like what we expect, but it isn't avoidance. It really is just grieving differently. Those people just don't talk about it as much, or they might um, not tap into their emotional self in the same way. But sometimes there really is avoidance. There really are situations where some people just cut themselves off from their uh, emotional self or from the feelings that are starting to come up. Sometimes they feel like if I allow myself to start feeling those feelings, I don't know if I'll be able to stop, or I don't think that I should grieve. Um, certainly we get lots of messages, everybody, but men, especially about showing emotion and being strong and, you know, and not allowing other people to see them struggling in any way. 
So sometimes we do find that people are really avoiding and trying not to feel. And in those cases, that can cause problems in other ways later. It can come out in uh, ways that sometimes don't look healthy of trying to use substances to avoid or overworking, throwing yourself, you know, distracting yourself, trying to just avoid, 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 because you never learn to get comfortable with feeling those emotions and feeling those feelings. So it's some, it's sometimes hard to say there's not an easy, you know, yes, it's always this, or it's always that if we don't see people uh, grieving in the way that we expect. But I think for anybody who might be listening and thinking, is this a problem for me? I think if you, if you feel, feel fearful of what it would mean to let yourself feel those emotions, to actually connect with those things. If you've cut it off in this way because you don't want to let yourself access those feelings, that can be a space where it's important to go. Maybe I could get a little bit of support where I could learn how to feel those feelings safely because it might allow me to also then reconnect with a lot of the good memories to be able to actually um, go back and think about that person and know that, yes, it might be hard, but there'll also be all these good connections there too. And by cutting myself off from the hardest things, I'm also cutting myself off from the good memories. You know, I can't, you can't cut mm. yourself off from just part of it. And so if you're, if you feel like you've been doing that, it can be an important place to get some some support. Well, as a bereavement facilitator in my world, I've, I've noticed that, and we, we call it uh, John Wayne syndrome, for those older folks who are listening, you know, got to be the tough guy and suppress my emotions. And, and I, you know, I can't be the one who, you know, I failed and I can't show my expressions or anything. And um, but in the, in America, the statistics are that men between 50 and 60 are the fastest growing group of suicide. Yeah. And, and I think that there's a correlation between that and people who don't know how to grieve, you know, yeah. or, 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 not, or are suppressing their emotions. And that's the way they end up dealing with it. And I, and I, I encourage people to, that have had a loss and that are taking it badly to join a grief group, no matter what it is, whether it's for men, for women, for child loss, for sibling loss, you know, any categorization yeah. you know, where you can talk to other peers that are in the same exact boat that you're in so that they can, you can see how they deal with it and see that you're not the only one who cries at work behind the counter because you don't want them to, anybody else to know that you're still grieving, you know, in three yeah. months or a year later, you know. I think it's so important to connect with people and know that, you know, you're not alone, that your grief, even the things that we often feel like are the most abnormal or that we feel the most shame about and how we grieve often when you connect with other people, you realize, oh, wow, they're doing it too. Like they're having those breakdowns in the car where they don't feel like they can go inside at work or they're talking to the person who died out loud in their house, you know, as a way to stay connected. Like, 
so many of us are doing these things. And I think you're right, those groups. And if you feel like talking isn't isn't the medium that's going to work for you, there are lots of ways in the online space to connect with people through there are grief writing groups where you learn to process grief through writing and you know journaling and then you can share your writing with others or not but it gives you a space where you can connect with others and share and and read some of what they're sharing but not feel that pressure if you're not quite ready to feel yeah. like you're going to be in person with people sometimes it can be like one step at a time to figure out what you're comfortable with but just knowing that there's a range of support and there is something that will work for you is what we always always tell people it's so important to find ways to connect so um lita let me ask you on a personal level how do you keep your emotions grounded considering all of this work that you're doing all the time dealing with people on a day-to-day -day basis that are dealing with grief i mean is that um is there a, how do you, how do you cope with that or how do you how do you uh, rejuvenate yourself from from going the wrong way on your own you know yeah you know i i um i've often thought about this and and said this to people before that it can be a little bit counterintuitive that working in grief, you see just so much suffering and it can be overwhelming to just realize at, at any moment, just how much deep suffering there is and losses that are, you know, so many losses that feel unfair and unjust and make you ask why and you know all of the existential questioning and the things that um can be so hard uh and i think that's not unique to just me because i work in grief but so many of us know that right the world is a, a really chaotic and unpredictable and hard hard place but in grief you can definitely feel it a lot day in and day out and Interestingly, I think in like a weird way, um, that has always caused me to have a perspective for my personal experiences where I think like, I never think why me? <laughs> I always think like, why not me? Like with anything that happens in my life, I think like that part of being human is that life is hard and that there are so many unfair things that happen. And for me, in a weird way that sounds really backwards, um, just makes me feel deeply grateful and connected to other humans. Like the thing that I feel like we have in this world where we're all at some point going to have to navigate things that are devastating and hard is being able to appreciate each other and support each other and then have the the small things that get us through the day. And so I am like such an incredible believer in tiny moments of gratitude of like finding those little things in my day that I am grateful and appreciative for and celebrating those things. I am also someone who is just, um, 
really, really conscious of valuing every minute that I do have, um, because I think I am aware that we, we don't know how much time we get on this planet. And so I try to be really thoughtful about how I spend my days and trying to make sure that I do things that I really love and that I reach out to friends and family who I care about and don't let too much time pass without connecting with people and that I do things that I feel like help other people in the world. And I think in a weird way, I, I joke sometimes that I'm a being towards death, right? Like I'm thinking about death all the time. And that somehow also makes me appreciate life even more because I'm always faced with that reminder um, that it can all turn so quickly. So that's how I do it. I, it doesn't all, it, I will say it works most of the time. It doesn't always work, but it works, works yeah. a lot of the time. And on the days it doesn't, I always go outside. That is my answer to a lot of things. If I am um, on my it, deep, dark days for me, I go, let me go outside. Let me get into the woods. Usually that helps me to kind of connect and reground and feel, feel a little bit, um, more connected with nature. Well, you certainly in, have an upbeat attitude. That's for sure. I've seen you for two days at the conference and now today, and you're always smiling, which is a, which is extremely healthy. That's, that's the most yeah. important thing. You're always smiling. I really appreciate that. And, and I want to thank you very much for taking, your, taking the time out today to talk with us and, um, we really appreciate you. And can you do one more time, say, how do, how do we get on? How does somebody get on your newsletter? Oh yeah, absolutely. If you go to what's your and you just scroll right about halfway down, you'll see a big spot where you can sign up for our newsletter. Um, and that's yeah, completely free. And there are tons of free articles and a lot of that information that has been in many of the newsletters over the years uh, that you can find there on the website. Um, all that information is available. And if you prefer to listen rather than read, um, we do have a podcast and you can find that at the same place at whatsyourgrief.com. I appreciate that. This will be a podcast on WMEXBoston.com as well. Oh, so okay. we I really appreciate your time and um, keep it going. You are definitely an asset for the human race. So, Well, thank you so much for spending time highlighting this at this time of year, at the holiday season. It is uh, so heavy for everyone. So really grateful for you having me and just creating a space where we can all acknowledge that a lot of us are feeling this grief this time of year. Thank you very much. This is Tony LaGreca, and this is Courage to Hope. We've been talking to Lisa Williams, I would say grief counselor, expert, specialist on grief in many different ways. And we thank you very much, Lisa. Thanks.